When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. We all begin our lives with a sense of childlike optimism and imagination. But for many of us, this unbridled creative spirit slowly begins to wane. Artistic expression, whether through crayons, Legos, or a Thanksgiving hand turkey, eventually starts to take a back seat to more traditional scholastic pursuits. Today's guest believes that we're all still artists in our own right. The key is to pursue a goal of excellence, self-dedication, passion, and quality control in whatever we do, whether it's fixing elevators, being a janitor, or welding fire escapes. And he should know, he's done all three of these jobs. But he also happens to be a world-class artist with work in the permanent collection of the Metropolitan Museum of Art, the Guggenheim, and the Whitney, to name just a few. His work is provocative and intelligent, but also whimsical and accessible. He creates handcrafted mixed-media sculptures that explore our cultural icons. A Chanel chainsaw, an oversized painting of an Air Force One matchbook, an elaborate recreation of a NASA spacecraft. He's consciously shunned being preoccupied with the hype and abstract market value of his work. Instead, he simply devoted himself to creating artwork that's both authentic and undeniable. So how does such an influential and successful creator avoid succumbing to the pomp, spectacle, and self-conceit sometimes associated with being an art world celebrity? We'll find out as we sit down for a chat with one of New York's most distinctive and esteemed contemporary artists. Today, sculptor, craftsman, creative team leader, and Rockaway resident, Mr. Tom Sachs. Tom Sachs, good to see you, man. Thanks for sitting down. Oh, good to see you, Justin. Finally, it's I know. Been a while. You know what? It's so funny. Like this new normal, where Zoom conversations have become the the standard. I cannot even imagine two years ago trying to get all of these guests like in the same room at the same time. It's actually kind of the one blessing of COVID, I guess. You know, there's always a silver lining. I think that's the that's the main thing about this. There's always something yeah. cool. I mean, we've had some incredible experiences during. I mean, make no mistake, it fucking sucks balls, but. For example, the Uber has gotten so good. The main thing is they used to never take packages, right? And so now I'll work on a sculpture and Uber it over to someone else's house. Are you serious? And they'll work on it in their, ba- in their basement. And then they'll send it to someone else in the studio and they'll work on it. And they'll send it back to the studio where Ava was here by herself for a couple months, just like getting things photographed, shipping them out. And like before Uber wasn't doing that. And my buddy who's uh, you know a career weed dealer finally can use uber as a viable and safe delivery service and is and, and you know accepts venmo and has like a a, a really successful like it's made his life well, better good. well like congrats to your uh, your enterprising uber delivered weed dealer <laughs> Um, yeah. Well, so I, I checked out your your show, Handmade Paintings, in New York recently, and congrats, man! It was just a lot of really beautiful stuff. 
I think my favorite piece in the show, Thank though, you. was the matchbook from Air Force One. And like something, something mm. about that color palette, that baby blue of Air Force One, just has always made me feel like a certain way. It evokes a sense of, of nostalgia and, and almost a sadness. Like for some reason, it always reminds me of that picture of, of Jackie Kennedy standing next to LBJ, like right after JFK was shot. You know, and it's such a, it's such a great uh, piece of yeah. Americana branding, you know. And, you know, as you know, Donald Trump had his sights set on a, a redesign of Air Force One and thankfully that won't be happening. Like, was was that prospect at all in your mind when you were working on that piece? Well, yeah, of course. You, you can't think of Air Force One without thinking of the Kennedys. And um, so glad you brought up Jackie's blood-spattered Chanel dress and how what a badass she was to not change her dress. And she wanted... She said, the look people, what they did. Yeah. Yeah. She wore that, that, that dress. And I don't know what happened to that dress, but that's a real icon of, of individual power. And in a way it was like a feminist gesture because she had her real identity, um, as America's first lady. And especially at a, a day like that, when she lost her husband and the transition of power, I, I can't even imagine thinking on my feet like that ever. Um, and Air Force One has forever been a, um, a, a real symbol of power. Uh, there is a rug on Air Force One that Raymond Lowy designed for the Kennedys and they, they made two of them. And if you look at his book, Industrial Design, there's a picture of the, of the rug and, and there's some comments. And he said the other one, there were two, he made two. One is on Air Force One on the floor between the president's bed and the, the first lady's bed. Wow. You know, which is pretty suggestive. They have, they have separate beds. Yeah. yeah, it was the 50s, you know, 60s, early. Oh, you know, one, it was, one, they were, one for the wife, one for the mistress. <laughs> yeah, um, maybe, but the story can continues in that's that Lowy had the other one, you know, it was like a gift from the president or something. And it was, he had that in front of the fireplace in his house in Palm Springs. So, you know, that, that the suggestion of sex is always present. Well, so, you know, you and I were, we were in a group show a couple years ago at the Rockaway beach surf club. And yeah, it was, yeah. it was a really interesting show because it had a, a couple of, you know, really successful artists. You were in it, um, you know, Patti Smith had a piece and Michael Stipe had a piece, but there was also a lot of, you know, unknown and emerging artists, you know, some of them from the neighborhood or whatever. And, you know, the place can get a little rowdy after hours. And I was, I was there a week or two after it opened, having a beer. And there was these group of guys that kept on standing around and they were drinking and um, they kept on leaning against your piece, you know, and kind of bumping into it and not really like showing it respect. And I don't think they knew anything about it. And it just it's after the third or fourth time, I was like, I have to go and talk to these guys. So, you know, I politely said, hey, can you guys, you know, show a little respect, maybe not lean against that. And um, it kind of escalated quickly. And like and Brandon, the owner, came uh, over uh -huh. and kind of had to like, you know, diffuse the situation and uh -huh. nothing happened. But uh, I just thought it, it was so funny because, I mean, obviously they had no idea who you were or the context of the, of the art. Um, but it reminded me a lot of shooting on the North Shore with, with Julian Schnabel when he's walking around with these purple pajamas. And like so few people over there knew, you know, who he was and how influential he was. And there was such a disconnect between the surf culture and the art world. And, you know, both of you guys have a real love and passion of surfing. And, and I'm curious, you know, from your perspective, artistically, what's the connection between surfing and art? Like, what Whoa, does that mean to big, you? big question. Um, but I want to go back to the bar yeah. because <laughs> I, you know, I, and I think, I don't know, I bet you Julian would probably agree with this, this sentiment, but like, I don't, 
I mean, yeah, okay. I'm not going to pretend, but I, you know, I know that this that there's a lot of like hype and and money and power and stuff around the art that I make. But at the same time, it was just a, just a piece of art in a bar. And yeah, so maybe now I don't show my art in bars that much anymore. It's like maybe a little unusual for me, but a lot of artists do. And, you know, you have your art in a bar or a restaurant or a hotel. It's different than in a gallery, in a museum. And it's not that art isn't any less important. It's just maybe doesn't have as much like financial mechanisms around it, but it still exists and it's still important. And like, I, I love that bar because there is so much art in there and it's like and it's a lot of artists from the community like myself and patty smith and pat conlin and uh, artists who are less known and stuff and i think it's what was cool about that show was that all those people that were in that show and the and the photographs and other things and the surfboards that's all part of the community and and what's most important to me um in my art is is the idea of of ritual and connection. So I don't make my art for a museum. I make it for myself and my community. And in that case, that piece I made specifically for that show, because it was the tide charts of that year in Rockaway overlaid or next to insurance actuary charts of your life expectancy based on how old you are, how many years you have left to live is a thing about mortality and fleeting uh, and how fleeting life is like the waves themselves that they, you know, they come, they go, they're before your life and after. So I, I think those, I think as a metaphor for the important things in life, whether it's the waves or the years, uh, there are these universal truths and, and putting them all together in that piece is, has been, um, and of course it's about surfing because the tide, especially in Rockaway is everything. So, I mean, obviously you don't want your work to get destroyed, but let's say like in theory, in that context, if it did get beer splattered all over it, it's, you're not that precious about the piece in the sense that if you have like a kind of site specific patina to it from yeah. something that happened that would add yeah, to its think, value? Well, specifically there, I mean, I think I made that a material so that it could handle that. I mean, the, the thing I hate most about surfing is, well, there are a lot of things to hate about surfing, but like I'd say the thing that sec- my second most hated thing about surfing is surfboards because they just do not get better with age. They're great when they're new, yeah. but it's so easy to fuck them up and like everything, you know, UV just things every they're like they're incredible but they're like made of glass yet you're using them in 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 a by definition extreme environment and yeah they work great and the and they are built like heirloom products but they're also kind of disposable because they're in service of the activity but they unlike other things like that are similar like a musical instrument for example that can get better with age and and but it's also the difference between a a tool and an instrument right a, an instrument is something that gets fucked up when you drop it right and a tool can handle the drop well have you had any experiences with other shows with i mean cuz your work is it's sometimes pretty intricate and and pretty delicate like have you had any experience with stuff getting damaged constantly and forever i mean it's the my one of my favorite artists john tingley who is a kinetic artist and sculptor spent who's dead is swiss artist great as a museum in switzerland incredible artist uh He's Tingley, Jean Tingley spent his uh, this, the last 20 years of his life traveling around the world. 
because he was super successful and famous, repairing his kinetic sculptures and fixing stuff that was wow. like, you know, the chain fell off of a gear or something. He had to fly to, you know, London or San Francisco and put the chain back on and leave because no one couldn't know how to fix it. And then, so that's kind of a cautionary tale. Um, so as I've gotten older and have more resources, I do I build things now more and more in more durable materials. So when I first first starting out, I made things out of scotch tape and cardboard shirt cardboard. But now I use bronze if I can, just because I don't want to deal with it. And I still have plenty of stuff coming back from the the nineties for that needs help. And there's no one better to restore it than me because I made it. So I and I also. A restorer always comes to me and asks questions like, what's okay for us to do to fix this thing? Because you're the artist, so everyone trusts you. And it always just means it's easier for me to do it myself. But that fucking sucks because I want to yeah. work on the next thing. That's so fascinating. I never really thought about you know, the lifespan of, of, of art and the mechanics and repair that need to be done. When I was a photo assistant, I was fortunate enough I got to work with Richard Avedon a couple times. And we were, we were creating up this show in London at the National Portrait Gallery, and there's this huge piece, a huge mural piece of Abby Hoffman and the family that had been vandalized sometime in the mid 70s. Someone came in there and like splattered it with paint. And like that particular print is like incredibly more, va- like it actually made it that much more unique. So it kind uh, of had yeah. this ironic yeah. effect that um, they showed that that piece was, you know, 30 years later, like on display. And it's, it's one of a kind now. It's kind of interesting. Well, yeah, because it had a history to it. Like if those guys spilled beer on it and you got into a fight and there was like blood on it or something, it would make the piece all the, all the better because there's a story behind it. I mean, I don't want the anyone's history, blood yeah. on it, but yeah, it's that's the stuff that makes ritual like your old surfboard that you know that you spent years on and maybe you got good on and developed like that one is way more valuable even if it's got holes and it's waterlogged and doesn't really work yeah. that way it's in a in a lot of ways more valuable than a brand new perfect one because it's got all that history of course um well getting back to rockaway for a second i mean you've been able to travel and surf in, in so many different places and like yeah. what is it about surfing in rockaway i mean i assume that you would have the means to buy a house basically wherever you want. Like why, why not Montauk or Malibu or someplace a little bit more Tony with respect to surf? Like how did you end up in Rockaway? Whoa. Well, I think you're assuming a lot. Aram's <laughs> listening in on this call and Aram, can, can I buy a house in Montauk or Malibu? Please. <laughs> um, uh, I, I honestly, I, I, cannot afford a house in Montauk or, or Malibu. Um, but it's not just about the money. It's just about the time. Like I can't go to Malibu and I could go to Rockaway more. I mean, I could go to Montauk more. I mean, it's, I I should, but I'm always balancing my time in the studio with, with surfing time. And I made that movie, how to learn how to surf, which you've seen, you've seen it, right? I have. Yeah. 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 And you know, in that in that movie, um, I really investigate like the Tom character, the me character. My journey in that movie is trying to come to terms with my sort of perpetual intermediate level. Like I've been surfing for many years more than some top pros, right? But I'm still kind of stuck at this intermediate level, and. You know, it's just because I simply haven't put in the time. Like a a a, a teenager pro um, has put in more hours than I have put in over the past thirty years, and 
has dedicated their life to it, and that's the difference. But I've you know spent that time making sculpture and doing ceramics and drawings and movies and stuff. So the big breakthrough in that movie for me was, and I hope that other surfers are out there listening at any level, is that um, that surfing is an elective activity that it's like it's for fun, and whoever you are, it's for fun. I mean, maybe not poor Kelly Slater who has to like beat himself up about being the, you know, the best on earth and a, and a competitor. But like for the rest of us, for the rest of us mortals, it's an, an elective activity and it's done for fun and recreation and to hold yourself to world-class standards like I do in my art, you know, is it's not only is it not fair to to me and the enjoyment of it, but it's also not fair to those other people who have dedicated their lives to it. It's not like I'm not really worried about offending anyone, but I'm just meant more that, you know, know, cheetahs run 75, 75 miles an hour. A peregrine falcon flies 150 miles an hour on a dive. Human beings dig ditches and build bridges. They specialize. (laughs) And I I specialize in sculpture. So for me, surfing is like a, a hobby and it's fun. And I'm not really ashamed anymore about being a champagne surfer about in really enjoying it on on good days i've been out every month of the year in rockaway over my lifetime like i didn't go out last month but i was busy doing an art show i mean i think that's what's so interesting about rockaway as a surf culture is because it's relatively new i mean you know there's a couple old crusty heads uh, that have been surfing since whatever back when but in terms of like a kind of mainstream surf culture it's a dozen years old, maybe a little bit more, maybe yeah. a little bit less. Yeah. And, you know, most of those crusty old heads that are like, oh, back in the day, like those aren't the best surfers in the lineup. You know what I mean? Unlike mm-hmm. a lot of places where you have, you know, Malibu or someplace that has such a rich history. So, I mean, getting back to the previous question, is there a connection about Rockaway that you find inspiring for your art? I mean, whether it's like the sights and the sounds and like the graffiti, I mean, it's a very unique place. I mean, is it more than just the ability to surf that made you land there? Well, I don't want to, Trash Rockaway. No, but, no, no. I'm not trashing. You know, I, mean, I, I think. I think. Like uh, to, to me, the thing that excites me about it is that it's still possible, right? That like I could afford to to do that to do it there. Like I couldn't really afford to do a, a house in Montauk, not just because of the money, but because of the distance. And I can go to Rockaway and be back before lunch without like doing some heroic like 3 a.m. pain. Yeah. pain experience because I, I can't do that because it, it, every time I do like a dawn patrol involving two one hour car rides, like I'm pretty much spent for the rest of the day. And that's not responsible to, to my other commitments, the places where I am, you know, world-class. So I'm really dedicated to that. Like I, I was talking to Howard Stern and uh, we we're, we we're working out at the gym at La Palestra with Pat Menachia. And he said like, I'm like, come on, Howard, do five more push-ups. He's like, no, I can't because if I can do five more push-ups, but then I'm going to be trashed the rest of the day. I'm not going to be as sharp on the radio show because I got to go perform after this. And I I don't want to be too tired. Like I know what I need. And I think it's so important for people to listen to their bodies and understand. Like Doc Paskowitz said, you know, that the body is in service of the mind, of course, but the mind is in service of the body. You got to listen to your body. And that's something that surfing teaches you fast. Cause it's so brutal. There's a, there's a fine line between where, you know, a healthy recreation eats into your professional life in terms of how much your body can take. I, I, to me, it's, it's really clear, but of course my achievement ego, my fragile, insecure, 
shell of a man wants me to be a better surfer. You know, of course there's like, there's, you know, shame and missing a great wave opportunity because of a skill or a weakness or an experience thing. And of course, you know, the, their surf culture is, is surrounded by, um, extremely unsympathetic, um, uh, stingy individuals who aren't like, who aren't into sharing. It's a selfish act. Um, oh, absolutely. You know, some of the surf, some of the best people I know are surfers, but most of the surfers that I meet are dicks. And, um, <laughs> and I hate to generalize about a group, but I, I think I have enough experience to, to make that generalization. But no, for I'm, sure. It's a very, it's a, it's a selfish endeavor. Cause there's a, there's a finite amount of resources that you're all fighting for. Ultimately. Yeah, yes. No, but it's extremely kooky. Like I find like the, the kookiest people are the ones who are the most gnarly. And like, I don't know, I was surfing with punker out in Rockaway and people were so like bitchy and <laughs> like, and like mean spirited. And then like, you know, he just like paddles around them. You know, or like, and also surfing with Jonathan Paskowitz, who's just like such an elegant fish in the water, just like giving people priority by their board length, you know, just because he can. (laughs) And then when they don't take it, he'll like paddle around and catch it, you know, with one arm. And, you know, there's, I, I, I think that surfing with people like Punker and Jonathan is like inspiring because they're, you know, they're generous souls. Yeah. And, and it's, it's kind of like the whole, um, the sophomore level of, of achievement, you know, the masters are always generous. It's just the, the, very the you know, like, yeah. When I do the tea ceremony, um, cause I'm like a kind of also like intermediate tea ceremony level person, like the, you know, I have had a whole exhibitions on my tea ceremony. I've built every aspect of the tea ceremony and, and the, the tea masters in Japan are love it and are super appreciative and cool and bring me gifts. But the like other white middle-aged Jews from New York city <laughs> hate me because like, you know, they're the ones that want to tell me how to do it. <laughs> um, so I want to, I want to get a little switch gears for a second. I want to get your, your insight into, you know, your, your, your true daily job, your, your art world job. Yeah, um, yeah. So, you know, we have a few friends in common. Um, first and foremost, Pat Conlon. Let's get that shout out out of the way. Conlon! I know he wanted that one. So it's <laughs> Conlon. Um, I think that's how that's how we originally met. But um, yeah, yeah. we also I'm also really good friends, and I think you know him as well. I'm good friends with Spencer Tunick, and he's he's a close oh, yeah. friend of mine. He um, right. and we had him on the show a couple months ago. And although his medium is photography, he's like firmly planted in the fine art world. You know, he sells big mm-hmm. prints and shows in gallery. Um, mm-hmm. I'm a commercial photographer. I get paid to take pictures and sometimes people buy those photos and they put them on walls, but that's really a product of they like a specific image and they want to have that on their wall. But as an artist, it seems like you reach a threshold really quick of how much someone's willing to pay just because of the aesthetics of a piece. And in order to become Mm -hmm. a successful artist, it seems like you need to make this leap to define your work as having an intrinsic value to actually being a commodity greater than just what it looks like. And it's very difficult to do. And not many people have been able to pull that off. Um, like, speak to me about that process. I mean, how, how do you how do you make that leap? Right, that's like the big question, right? I think I don't know. I I'm not trying to avoid it, but I'm going to go back and sort of say what I said before in a different way. I think it's what's important is that you make the work work for you first, the maker, 
than for your community around you, your friends, your family, people that you work with. Um, you make it work for them, whatever it is, whether it's a photograph or a sculpture or a surfboard or whatever, shoe, anything, doesn't matter what it is, a contract. If, you're, if your art is contract writing, if you're a lawyer, for example, it doesn't matter. And then you hone that and refine it and get so fucking good at it that you transcend the normal standards of excellence the world around you. In other words, you're so much better. You're like the best at it. You're so good at it that you redefine it. And then the other thing that you're talking about where that, where the object transcends its intrinsic value happens automatically, but you got to do it in a way where you transcend the existing standards of excellence in the craft that you do. And this is true of surfing and painting. So like, you know, you look at someone like Kelly, right? He like is a really good surfer, is like as good as everyone around him. And then he just gets a little bit better than everyone else. And in some cases, a bunch better. And that's why his activity is better than others. And that's why he wins. Or you look at someone like Punker, who's a non competitive surfer currently but he brings it to the next level and as a result the other projects that that he does around him like western hydrodynamics start to arise around the experience his experience as a as a surfer and as a waterman and a beach culture person because it's about his surfing and he surfs all the time so like i think if he stopped surfing and just did that company it would be lame it would be like fucking Hollister or Supreme, one of these like fake companies that where it's like not about anything other than the product. It doesn't have a core to it that's authentic. It's maybe named after or there may be people associated with or it started brands. with that originally, but it's yeah, but it like lost a lost the focus or something and it turned into something else. So I think those that's why some and I think that's what happens with with a lot of brands and also with a lot of artists when they get too big. Like they get too it turned too bureaucratic to quote the great Jay Shiat. How big can we get before we get bad? <laughs> you know, and like, but what it, what it means is like where you know it's it's always always about maintaining authenticity by doing actions that support the core of who you are truly. So, what's a, what's your ratio between like raw talent and 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 focus and authenticity versus a mastery of? the gamesmanship and the politics of the art world. It's like 90, 10, 50, 50, or is it different for every artist? It's for sure different for every artist, but the one thing that is, that, that is universally true is if, if you're going to be an artist and I don't care if you're a painter or a sculptor or a surfer or a lawyer, you know, everyone's an artist. You have to do 100% excellence on your art and the business stuff is automatic. Now it doesn't mean you're automatically going to be super rich. Doesn't matter. You're going to be successful. Doesn't, it doesn't matter if you're going to be medium rich or be able to buy a sandwich rich or be able to buy a Ferrari rich. Like it's, that's all, I don't want to say it's irrelevant, but it's automatic. Like you just do, like you can't fake that part either. Like some people are really good at business. Some you have to just, Focus on your art first. You got to do business if you want to pay the bills. Like you can't, you know, you got to floss your teeth. You know, you got to wash your face. You got to like put on clothes. You have to breathe air and feed yourself with food and water. 
you got to do stuff to stay alive. That's like you got to you got to pay Con Ed if you want to have Wi-Fi. Um, so, I mean, I guess I'll preface this on let's say just assuming, and I think I personally think this is true. Assuming that you are that guy, you do one hundred percent. You've mastered. You it's soulful. Like you give one hundred percent. On top of that, would you consider yourself savvy or talented at the politics and the marketing side of art? Do you enjoy that aspect of it? Or is it something that it's just kind of like a necessary aspect that you've learned to have to adapt to in order to keep creating your art? Yeah, that's a great question. Um, So I don't think I'm particularly talented or skilled at it, but I so believe in my art that I will do whatever it fucking takes to make that art like stick up on the wall. And that means meetings, politics, like uh, uh, sticking to agreements. Like if I, if I say I'm going to do something in any genre, do it. Do sober what you said you do when you were drunk so you remember to keep your big fat mouth shut. Like, like you know, if, have integrity and the other stuff is automatic. So like, yeah, I put a lot of time into that. But that's because I know that I'd have to do that. And, and we're living in a great era for that. Like anyone can do it now. Cause I did this before Instagram, but now look at, look at Conlon's Pat Conlon's Instagram page. Like he has, he sells his art through his Instagram page and makes a living selling art and he makes awesome art. And prior to this, he would have had to always like fight these, uh, you know, the, 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 the demons of, the art world like rely on other people, but the great thing about this time is that it's it's like a real bootstrap scenario. Like you just do good work and really do good work, not okay work, but the best work that you can possibly do, and constantly be self critical and don't take anything for granted within your own work and constantly push it. People will show up, and and you and you don't and 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 then you don't need an agent because the problem with agents and I work with the best agents on the planet. Knock wood. I mean, I've I've been I've been really lucky, and I've got some great great people like on my team, like the Aquavellas, and you know, Tadeus Ropak, and and the show next month we're doing in Paris at at um, uh, called Ritual at Tadeus Ropak Gallery, like, um, and the show we just finished at Aquavella Gallery, handmade paintings, like they're 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 dedicated, but they're not me. Right. So it's like they have their lives to take care of, too. And they're the best. Well, so, I mean, I'd love to hear about since you brought it up and and maybe this has changed with with the advent of of Instagram and all this social media and all these other channels. But I'm curious about the economics of the art world. Like there's this old saying that if you go to a Hollywood actor's house on their wall, there's pictures of other actors. And if you go to a Hollywood producer's house, they have Picasso's on their wall. Like, is there mm-hmm. an analogous situation in the art world? Like, who who are the big fish of the art world? Is it the dealers, the people who own galleries? Is there, generally speaking, not necessarily with you, but is there a dis- huge disparity between the artists and the people making a lot of money? Is it like the music industry where generally the, the creators are on the lower end of the profit spectrum? Like, how how is the money distributed within the art world? Well, I, you know, I don't... That's a... Am I, am, am I putting you on the spot? You don't have to speak personally. I'm just curious. No, 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 no. I, I think that um, there's a huge range. You know, there are, I know art dealers who have a lot more money than me. I know a lot of artists who have a lot more money than most art dealers out there. You know, what you're, because I think what you're really talking about, whether it's the art world or Hollywood, are very, very few 
select group of people and you can talk about them, but it's kind of like reading People magazine. There's so few people that you're talking about. You're not really talking about everybody else. And that's who I'm interested in. It's like all the thousands and thousands of artists. Like art is art, good, bad, or indifferent. You know, you can scream from the highest mountain, I'm the best artist, but only posterity will like will will prove and only time will prove who will survive. And um, you know the market is a, is is a, is one indication of survival, but we we just don't know. We don't know if anyone's going to give a shit about what I do in five years or fifty years or let alone five hundred years. So, uh, but I'm pretty sure that in five hundred years, no one's going to give a shit about Larry Gagosian, <laughs> right? They're going to be interested in the artists of this time, whoever those artists are that represent our time. Because have you heard of Cornweiler? I have not. You know, Picasso's great dealer. Most important dealer of the early 20th century. Maybe it was Cornweiler. Someone should know. It's a, foot, it's a footnote, the point of the story. Yeah, like, he's the guy. But you don't know. And, and I'm not even sure of his name myself, right? <laughs> and I'm really, like, pretty involved in this stuff. I'm going to ask one more question and then I'll get off this topic of money just because I'm always just so curious. No, but you can keep, you can keep going. And, and I, and I hope that you don't feel like I'm avoiding, I know what you want, but I'm not, it's like, I don't like, that's not, I don't, I don't like think about yeah, that. I stuff. mean, I'm not just looking for a soundbite here. I mean, I'm genuinely interested yeah, yeah. because I'm not in that world and it just, it seems so mysterious it is, to me. Right? I mean, you, yeah. you know, you go to these Chelsea art spaces, there's a 3000 square foot gallery with, like a fucking pile of sand on the floor, you know. Yeah, like, I yeah. just don't understand yeah. how the economics of that and, and you work. Go, and you go by and you go by a gallery. Sorry, I'm just going to interrupt. Yeah. And you think that you need an appointment or COVID aside, or that you're, you know, that you have to get an invitation or you have to pay. Like I hope people are listening, uh, you know, and just art gallery. You never have to pay to go in, and you almost and you don't ever really need an appointment except for like this quarantine time. You just show up. And then if there's an art opening, no one's going to kick you out. They're, they're public openings. That's part of the culture. There is a gigantic uh, class and race divide where people don't feel welcome. But that's more like an you know, a, 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 um, institutional rule. It's not like the, no one's ever going to kick anyone out. I mean, getting back to that scenario where there's just, it's something that just, it seems so uninviting to the layperson who's not in that world. Yeah. Like if you had. It's alienating. Let's say like. And you don't have to name names or name names if you want, but let's say the three, let's take the three most successful, richest artists on the planet. Would they be names? Would they be names that would be obvious and recognizable? Or is there a class of artists who are just filthy, but we have no idea who they are. They're not marquee names. That's a good question. I, you know, and I don't really know about like the contemporaries, but I remember when I was growing up, that the the richest artists when I was like a kid or in school, the richest artists on the planet were Jasper Johns, who is like a museum modern art darling, like uh, you know the the boyfriend of Rauschenberg, and he painted flags and was like you know real for sure uh, art history footnote of the twentieth century. He's still alive too, um, uh, and. I can't remember who the other one was, but the, the richest artist was Leroy Neiman. And he <laughs> did, right? And so for those of you who don't know who Leroy Neiman is, he did... Like Sports ex- Illustrated? Ex- yeah, he did, he did stuff in Sports Illustrated and like sort of splattery 
very skilled but messy renderings of Muhammad Ali or whoever uh, of athletes. And those sold for millions of dollars. And I guess this is probably a little bit after Picasso. Picasso was for sure the guy of the 20th century. I mean, he was, you know, he was one of the richest men in the world and he did it with his art and he would, you know, Oh, the legends of Picasso were so fun. Like they, um, he'd go to a restaurant, have some fabulous meal and he'd, at the end he'd sign the check and the, you know, the owner of the restaurant wouldn't cash the check, even though it was like a fabulously expensive meal of thousands of dollars with expensive wines because he wanted Picasso's signature. So he'd frame the check. So the, the money it. never went through. Never paid cash. And, yeah. Yeah. I think and there were countless stories of him buying cars and stuff like that. No one ever wanted to cash the check. I mean, he, I don't know if he drew a little scribble with a hope that they wouldn't cash it or, but he also <laughs> made so much money that even at the end of his life, when it was clear that he had so much money for his ancestors who were still fabulously rich, like the children and grandchildren of money, um, he was still producing for galleries, not for museums. He could have in that last decade or two just only done museum shows, but he chose to do gallery shows. He he liked it. He he was into the commerce. Break down the difference. Why that? Why that's interesting. What what's the difference? Well, so so uh, so a gallery, an art gallery, is a play is a commercial institution, a business owned by an individual or a group of individuals where the art is exhibited and sold, versus a museum where the 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 exhibition is not for sale it's just like a public like a museum of modern art the metropolitan museum of art or the whitney museum there there are places of um like a learning center almost like a library where you go and you look at stuff but it's never for sale and in and those places sometimes you have to pay admission to get into and but as a as a practical matter from the artist's point of view would one be more prestigious like why would he choose to do one or the other right so so museum shows are interesting because they're Super prestigious. They, they, you know, is there aren't that many of them. You know, in an art museum, there an art museum can only do half a dozen shows in a year, um, and there's no money. And the money comes from ticket sales and from philanthropists donating. So to do a, an art show in a museum, you're also it's all negotiated through museum directors and curators who are. Um, people with PhDs who are experts on art and who write about art and so who spin the the stories about why this art's important and they have public outreach efforts. So they're educators in the best when they're doing their job right. And it's also a prestige thing. So maybe a dealer could brag, hey, this the painting, this painting or painting very much like it was in a museum exhibition and it could be in your house and it's a way of consecrating the value of the art and helping the people who buy the art feel good about you know that their house is sort of like a museum and many of the world's biggest art collectors especially in europe have their own private little art collections like a little house next like a garage in their house where they do exhibitions and their own like they work like private little museums and these people who are really devoted to art and some of those collections grow into museums over time in fact the original idea of the modern museum from the 19th century kind of starts with stuff like that where people collect things and they show them whereas it's it, it, the museums at one point were always of old things but in, in the 19th and 20th centuries people started to, to stage exhibitions uh, of contemporary works so it's a it's a relatively new concept if you think of 100 years as, as new are the are the artists are they commissioned are they compensated or is it just about the prestige 
in a museum exhibition. I think it's yeah. really more about the prestige. I think there is very little compensation. Sometimes there is an artist's fee that helps the artist manage internally all the bureaucracy. Of, you know, it takes a lot of work to and a lot of time to organize an exhibition. Um, just loaning the stuff, shipping it organizing it, speaking publicly, being involved, being involved with educational um, outreach opportunities. Um, And from my experience, having done many museum shows, it's always a financial burden. It's never like the the fee that they give you. First of all, most of the time they don't really give it to you. It's like it just gets rolled back into like paying for painting the walls or something thing that you wanted that they didn't want so you always spend it on the some it's like the record is you never recoup <laughs> yeah you never never recoup and and but like for example i did an exhibition at the Osamu Noguchi museum which i would encourage everyone to go and Osamu Noguchi was an artist an american a japanese artist who was an american artist but had japanese parents so he uh, was born in a, a concentration camp in California, in uh, where the Americans in, interned or imprisoned Japanese citizens during World War II. So he never really felt Japanese. He never really felt American. He didn't, did not speak Japanese. He spent a lot of time in Japan, but he was always derided as an American when he went there. And he couldn't really, he always passed as American there and Asian here, and he always felt out of place. Anyway, long story short, Noguchi was a great artist for a lot of more important reasons than that. And I did, got to do an exhibition at the at the Noguchi Museum five years ago, and it was something that that cost a, a tremendous amount of money for the studio because it was it was just a huge production. But it was one of the most rewarding experiences of my life working with Dakin Hart, the curator of that museum, and and putting my work alongside of Noguchi's, who's someone who is like an although I never met him, but he was kind of like an emotional parent to me. There are a lot of artists that I like really look up to as my ancestors. I, I think of Noguchi as one of them um, with the kind of work that I do, for, you know, coming out of the kind of work that he did. And uh, so I wouldn't trade that for the world. Wow. But it was it was, it was tough. It was a burden. You know, we didn't like we didn't and, and we did not sell work out of that exhibition. It was just something that we did. Um, well, I'm curious about this. So, I mean, like unlike unlike photography, where, you know, you have a negative or a file and you can reproduce that as many times as you want, depending on the demand. Like if you're a sculptor or a painter, like once you sell that art, like you, you lose possession of it, it's, it's gone. And so if you're an artist that has a, a body work that, that appreciates greatly over the course of their career, like how do you, how do you benefit from that? Like how is the creator capitalized on an increase of the value? I mean, is it all just about building value for your next show? I mean, is there a lot of artists that become extremely famous after a large body of their work has been shown and they don't get any of that money? Like, how does that work? Well, I always feel like you should not really worry about that. And, and I always, anytime I part with something, I know that I'm doing the right thing if I feel like it was never enough money. You should, I, I ever heard a friend who, um, I have a friend who is an artist and he always said, Oh, I'm gonna. I got these two sculptors. I'm gonna keep the good one, and I'll sell the the one that's not as good. And I was like, "Man, you're crazy!" And he's like, "Why? I want to keep the good one." I was like, "Oh, I, I know you want to keep the good one, but you keep the good one. The bad ones out there advertising for you. You keep the bad one. The good ones out there are speaking for you. Where like it's saying, "Hey, look how good this Tom Sachs art piece is that I have in my living room, or in my art museum, or in this public plaza." Every, every person that walks by said, who made that? Oh, Tom made that. That's a good thing. And then 
they're like, oh, I got some extra money. Maybe I can get a Tom. If they see the shitty Tom that's out there, they're not going to want that. They want it the best thing. So that's, that's always been my strategy. Well, I mean, I guess my question is like you have the art market where it's like the dealers and the gallery owners and, and, and the politics of them holding pieces back and scarcity. I mean, is the, is the artist often largely outside of that process? Is that something that happens I don't say without their consent, but like outside of, I mean, they're focused on making the art and then there's this secondary market that kind of ends up ultimately making a lot of the money. Is that in broad strokes kind of what happens or no? I don't know. I mean, I, I, this, the idea of scarcity and holding back, I mean, I, I don't, I'm not one of those artists, so I can't really say like, I'm not an artist who's been, whose market's been manipulated. And, and also that, the, the, so-called conspiracy of marketing of of holding back and controlling prices and stuff i i i mean you know god bless these people if it's if it's true i think there's a lot of speculation people want their work the work that they own of an artist to be worth more because it's real money it's it's millions of dollars that's not an area that i've been involved with so i can't really speak to it um but i can say that as real as that is because i don't you know i'm not going to scoff at millions of dollars um it's not really that important the only thing that's important is the quality of your art because that's the only thing you can really control like i suppose you could get out there and like gamble the stock market you could get out there you could gamble with an art market and auction stuff but when things prices go up and down outside of your control, it's a form of gambling, and there's risks and there's rewards. But you can't control if uh, Amazon stock is going up or down. You know, all you can do if you're Amazon is, you know, exploit workers to the maximum capability and deliver profit to your uh, shareholders. You know, similar with an artist, all you can do as an artist is make the best art you can do. I mean, a lot of these questions, I don't think necessarily you are the best person to answer in terms of your personal career. But, you know, you're you're an insider is basically what I'm getting at. I'm just so curious about all these aspects of of the art world. I know it's someone should write a really good book about this because I think it's really all juicy gossip because you seem a lot more. I guess it seems like there's some artists that are a little bit more reclusive, maybe intentionally, maybe just because that's their personality. And then mm-hmm. some other artists, I guess, you'd say on, on the far side of the spectrum, like somebody like a Jeff Koons, where his image and his personality is like front and center of their artwork. Yeah. Like, where yeah. would you consider yourself on that spectrum? I mean, you're pretty, people know Tom Sachs pretty well. I mean, you put out a lot of product, but it's, it's continually something that people are inspired by. Like, where do you see yourself on that spectrum? Yeah. I mean, I, I, I consider my work to be a direct reflection of my values and ideas, whatever that is, whether it's a, a painting or a sculpture or a, a movie or a zine or whatever. Like I don't, I proud of what I do. I love what I do. I work with an awesome team that helps me expand my vision um, so we can reach a lot of people. I work hard to make these um, works, these sculptures and paintings. Uh, you know, I'm here in the studio today. As soon as we're done, I'm going to go, go back to making a drawing today by myself but I, but I think that the team helps me to expand the vision so that more people can get involved. So maybe you could wear a shoe that we made or maybe you could read a zine or maybe you could just look, look at one of our movies on Instagram or participate in one of our, you know, we're doing coming up pretty soon. You're going to be able to participate and do more instruction pieces. You could do your own 
Tom Sachs piece in your house that you own under my instructions. We did one during ISRU, and this is all sort of based in the work of Yoko Ono, the idea of an instructions piece. Like, I give you an instructions, you execute it. It's, you know, it's, it's my art instructions, but it's you own it. You made the thing, and it's a Tom Sachs piece. But it's also a Justin J piece, you know. It's a it's a co- collaboration. That's so interesting. Speak to me about, I mean, the philosophy of your process, because I know to a complete outsider, a lot of people would find it very peculiar, and, and it, it wouldn't make sense that you'd say, "Well, yeah, Tom Sachs is the artist," but a lot of his work's actually made by his assistants, or it's a collaborative yeah. process. Like that, that seems really strange to certain people. Like, did you always operate like that, or was that a product of scaling up in terms of? the materials that you used and how intricate some of your pieces have become. I've, you know, you can ask Conlon. I've always worked with people. When I was a a contractor, an elevator repairman, I always hired my friends to help me if I didn't understand how something worked or or I I did a lot of contracting so we had to do like, you know, plumbing or painting walls and took a lot of people and if there were extra time and, and if there was extra time and there were extra materials, at the end of the day, we I would say, hey, help! Let's we got extra time materials. Let's make because uh, whether it's art making or renovating an apartment, it's always time and materials. It's all there is. Um, I would I'd say, hey guys, there's extra time materials. Let's make some sculpture, and I would direct them in the same way that I would generally be a general contractor. I would direct them to help me with one of my art pieces, and that kind of grew from ninety five percent. Building construct you know blue collar construction work to, and five percent art to ninety five percent art and five percent construction jobs up until even I had you know a show at the Guggenheim Museum in Berlin and on the same day I was like on the phone with my landlord repairing an old elevator that was from the nineteenth century that only I knew I knew how to fix because I had an obligation. I didn't need the 50 bucks an hour to fix the thing as much because I was spending all my time on this museum show, but I had obligations to my community, so I had to like do both in one day. I'm pretty free of that stuff, although there is one day every year, and I'm not going to say what day it is, but if you ask me to do a job on that day, I'll do it. Like a welding job. That's your giving. That's your giving back, or why that one? It's just a way of like it's. I know it maybe it sounds pretentious or whatever, but it's a way of me keeping connected with my roots as a welder and as a as a maker. And I I still do repairs. I mean, uh, you you have to. I do them for myself and my home and and my friends and my family. But it's also a way of keeping an authentic, you know, a connection with stuff. I mean, I'm a maker first and foremost. You know, I I. I repair my own surfboards mainly because there isn't a good surfboard repairer in Rockaway. Like Rockaway seems to be filled with the most slacker bullshit workforce that I've ever met. Like I don't. I'm, this is my opportunity. I'm going to bash Rockaway for a second. Like, come on, guys, don't you want to don't you want to show excellence in your work? Like fucking. I I found this girl a couple years ago who was re- repairing boards, and it was the best scenario. She was the sister of a surfer, but she did not mm-hmm. surf, and she did amazing work and it was prompt you didn't have to worry about a swell coming in i was like it was it was great right? yeah and what happened to her she probably went back to college or something i don't know yeah i stopped using her and i think she probably yeah she probably grew up and moved on to greener pastures but uh yeah you definitely don't want a surfer repairing your surfboards this <laughs> will take you forever yeah it's it's yeah it's like the guaranteed disappointment like why like, why does it have to be like that? Like, why don't, why don't people take... I mean, sorry to be so bitchy about it, but, like, when I do surfboard repairs, they're good. 
you know, when, and it, you know, but they're also for me and for people that I care about. Um, you know, you you gotta you gotta believe in it. Um, so I'm curious in terms of of the the collaborative work of of how you create your art. I mean, I'm sure now you have an amazing studio and you have a team and it's like a a machine that's up and running. Like when you first started, was there an element of like kind of Tom Sawyer involved where you were like convincing your friends to, Hey, come on, let's do like how, other than, you know, the financial incentive, like how did you get people to collaborate with you when you first started? I mean, I think it very much, it it started first off as just a job. Like I, you know, it was in in New York, I didn't have any money and I just did, uh, I did window display. I was a janitor. I fixed elevators and fire escapes and I was good at getting, going out there and getting jobs. And I had friends who needed work. So I hired my friends and, and I still am friends with the people on my team. There are, you know, a dozen of us now. We're a coven, but there's a there's a f- family and friendship thing um, that uh, that is strong. I'm having dinner with uh, it's Christmas Eve right now, and someone from the studio who's an orphan whose family is in Holland is coming over for dinner tonight, like to join us, me and my wife, and after our, our, our boy goes to sleep. So it just kind of grew organically out of, out of a need. And over the years, the team has become much, much more specialized. The people on the team now are pretty advanced. Like we've got a, a, a good range. We've got some younger, less experienced people, but some of the people have been here for a while can do things that only, only they can do. Like no one else in the world can do them. Amazing. Um, well, God, it's been so good talking to you, man. I really, I've got some great insight into, I just, I'm always so curious about not just your career, but like, how the art world operates because it seems so mysterious in many ways. Yeah. Um, so thanks for sitting down. But we always like to end the episode by asking our guests to plug something that hasn't gotten a lot of attention or as much attention as it deserves, like whether it's a movie or a book or yeah. maybe another artist. Like, do you have anything that you want to shout out to the listeners that maybe isn't getting enough attention? Sure. Uh, uh, absolutely. Um, I'm going to do two things. There's a, um, uh, an interview in Playboy magazine that I just posted on Instagram from 1968. And it's Stanley Kubrick's interview right on the, upon the release of 2001 space odyssey. And it's kind of everything you need to know about existentialism kind of, you know, like through Stanley Kubrick's (laughs) eyes in in one article. Yeah. But it's, first of all, it's a long article and I, I posted the first few pages, but I also linked to a place where you can read the whole thing properly and make a PDF and stuff. But um, it's clearly, you know, Kubrick's, uh, who made 2001 Space Odyssey and a bunch of other great movies, um, obsessed with the edit on this. He must have spent weeks on this. Every word is perfectly crafted. So it's, it, sure, it's 20 pages long, but there's not a wasted word. It's it's perfectly done. And it really, I mean, it, it, it goes straight into the issues of our time of artificial intelligence and genetic codes and stuff. It's, it's, it's real. it's topical for now. That sounds, um, that sounds so that's one. And then please rock away, read endurance endurance. Yeah. That's the book. Okay. So if you haven't read it, who's the author? Um, the author is I'm putting you on the spot. Just Google it. But tell me, tell me about the book. Why is it important? Well, no, 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 no. I, it, it'll come to me in a second. But the book is about Ernest Shackleton's 1914, 1918 Trans-Antarctic Expedition, where they attempt to walk across uh, Antarctica. 
and what happens. And I'll, a little spoiler, but it's worth it's worth it. Is 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 that um, they get shipwrecked for four years and and no one dies. Okay. They get shipwrecked for four years and, and no one right. dies. And it's it's and it's um, let's see what happened. Thank you, Alfred Lansing. Yeah, so get that version of it. There are a bunch of different versions, but get Lansing's version. It's just very well written. Every word is obsessed over. So yeah, Alfred Lansing. Yeah, read Lansing. There, there are a dozen Shackleton books, but read Lansing's book. That's the one. Amazing. Tom, thanks for so. taking time to sit down. Um, yeah. I really dig what you do. Yeah. I'm, always, uh, I'm always pleased when our paths cross in Rockaway, and uh, yeah. I wish you all the best this season, and man. Justin, like, and, and listeners out there, you know, if you are a dedicated board repair person and like dedicated to craft and you think what I'm saying is bullshit and you want to prove me wrong, please DM me. <laughs> I want to meet you. I need you. <laughs> all right. Shout out to all the, uh, the, the guys slaving in the glass room. Think they can do better than Tom Sachs. <laughs> please, please. I look forward to meeting you All right, at wits. <laughs> right on. Well, thanks again, man. I'll talk to okay. you soon. Cool, brother. Okay, take care. Thanks. Bye. This episode of The Plug was produced by Bucci with audio engineering and original music by Peter Buckingham. Thanks for listening and a huge thanks to today's guests for dropping in. If you like this episode, hit subscribe and be sure to tune in for future conversations.